0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31. If you need a Bible, there's some on the back table. Uh, but we'll be in Genesis 31, verses 22 through 55 this morning, uh, continuing our study in the lives of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Um, we're in the story of Jacob right now. So, Genesis 31. In the uh, cinematic masterpiece known as Napoleon Dynamite, uh, Napoleon's best friend, his name is Pedro, and he's running for school president. Um, He's running against the queen of the school whose name is Summer Wheatley. Um, And Pedro has no chance of winning the popularity contest, but Napoleon helps him in various ways. Uh, One of them letting the outcasts of the school know that uh, Pedro offers them his protection. I don't know if you remember that. Maybe I've watched that movie too much. Uh, but that Pedro is concerned for the underdog and for the unpopular people in school. Uh, of course, Pedro not the only person to use this strategy in an election, right? Every candidate for president in this seemingly eternal election season um, is going to offer you their protection. They're going to make sure that you know that they are concerned for you. Uh, they're concerned for the underdog. They want to help those that are that are beat up, uh, that are beat down by the government or by employers or by big banks, or by immigration laws, or the lack of immigration laws, or the lack of a wall, or whatever else. They're going to be your protector. And we all feel that need to be protected because all of us, no matter who we are, have some sort of enemies in this life, people that are against us. Um, But it's not Pedro, and it's none of the presidential candidates that are going to offer us ultimate protection. And as we are walking through Genesis, Jacob has just begun a a journey where he is facing enemies. He has an enemy that's actually coming at him from behind um, in Laban, and he's got an enemy in front of him in his brother Esau, and he's sort of stuck in the middle at this point, wondering what's going to happen. And God reveals himself through these circumstances as Jacob's protector. Specifically here, I think what God is teaching, that's going to get old, isn't it? It must be a car alarm, but we'll we'll get through it. No, I don't think so. So specifically here, God God protects his people when they are unjustly pursued. And that's kind of the big thing that we're going to think about. God protects his people when they are unjustly pursued. So we're going to see uh, five things, three ways that God protects his people, and two reasons why. So we'll see the three ways first, and then two reasons that God protects his people when they are unjustly pursued. How does he protect his people, and why does he protect them? His people. I want to answer those questions this morning. So we're going to read uh, chapter 31, verses 22 through 55. But before we do that, let me just give you a brief recap. If you haven't been with us, or if you've just kind of forgotten, so we saw back in chapters 26 and 28, back in the land of Canaan, that Jacob has been deceived by his brother. That that Jacob has deceived his brother Esau one too many times, and Esau is so angry that he is going to kill his brother. And Jacob is forced to flee and goes to Padan Aram, where his uh, in laws live. He lands in Padan Aram, um, the home of his mother's relatives, I should say, and he meets his uncle Laban. And Laban is just as crafty and just as much of a trickster as he is, and they sort of trade um, this deception for a few years. And 20 years. Four wives and countless sheep and goats later, God calls Jacob to head back to the land of his birth, back to the land of Canaan. And last week we saw as Jacob sort of gathered his wives for a secret meeting out in the field and said, we're going to leave, it's time to go. Um, And and they all decide that it's time to leave town and they say, we're going to go we're not going to tell Laban. Um, And that's where we left them. So now we're going to read these verses uh, and try to feel the tension. We kind of know what's going to happen, but feel the, the tension here of what would have been going on um, in this situation. Uh, So Genesis 31, beginning in verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob has, had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me, and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out, What I have that is yours, and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that, I have, that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household gods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks, what was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom you have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadatha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galeed and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of, each other, of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you And you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Again, God protects his people when they are unjustly pursued. Quite the conversation that goes on here uh, between Laban and Jacob. The whole thing begins with um, sort of a high-speed camel chase through the desert. Uh, After three days of not hearing from Jacob, Someone probably went out to see what was going on, only to find that the place where his tent and all of his things had been was deserted. Um, and they were long gone, along with all the livestock, every member of his family. So a family of 16 individuals living in an area, um, and they had just sort of disappeared. Their fires had long been put out. There were only a few traces maybe of their previous home where their tents had been. And this is reported to Laban, who quickly gathers his relatives, probably his grown sons and, and others, and they head into the desert after them. You say, where is Laban going to go? How does he know which direction that Jacob went? Well, he knows because Jacob has told him in prior years that he's ready to head back to his father, to go back to the land of of Canaan. And Jacob had a three-day head start on Laban, but not having the burden of small children or large flocks, he catches up to Jacob pretty fast. And he catches up to him in the hill country of Gilead, which would have been east of the Jordan River, east of the land of Canaan, not into the land of Canaan yet. And we're told there in, in verse 25 that they, they pitched tents on opposite sides there in, the, in Gilead, which sort of has this scene of a, a battle array, as it were. And maybe you think about David and Goliath when they had the two tents on either side of the valley. And th- this tension here, something is, is, is going to happen. There's a, a conflict, a violent conflict that's about to erupt, it would seem like. It's a war that's been simmering for about 20 years between these guys, and it's finally about to boil over, it would seem. But God steps in. We see that in verse 24 where God appears to Laban in a dream. So this is Laban, the Aramean, a man outside of the covenant, a man who worships false gods. And, and God shows up in Laban's dreams. He appears to him and he says, not simply don't touch Jacob. He says don't even talk to Jacob. Even if you want to say something positive to him, don't talk to him. So as we think about God's protection And we're thinking about just kind of three ways that God protects us. The first one that I think we see here is that God protects us through divine intervention. um, Or direct, maybe you would say, since he is divine. God protects us through divine or direct intervention. As we consider this, just realize, I think if God doesn't step in, then this ends very badly for Jacob. Um, Laban's not a guy to be messed with. And justified or not, he feels like he's been wronged. He feels like he's been robbed. Um, and he makes that very clear. His perception of the situation is very skewed, though, isn't it? And That's how we all are. In any dispute, we always come out as the good guy, uh, which is how Laban's viewing the whole thing. He's the victim. But, but Laban's wrong. You look at verse 26. He's wrong in saying that um, you, dr- you have driven my daughters away. Rather, the daughters agreed, hey, let's get out of here because they had been betrayed by their father. Verses 27 and 28, he acts as if he's upset because he's missed some sort of opportunity to bless his family. Well, I mean, Laban, for most of his life, his character up to this point has indicated that he just wants to use his children to his own advantage. Later on in verse 43, he says, everything that you have is mine, which isn't true because Jacob has worked for all of it. And so his vision is sort of skewed, but as as much as he wants to sort of, you know, grab Jacob by the neck, as it were, he doesn't do it. Because of that dream. Now, he doesn't fully obey the dream, does he? Because he's certainly saying a lot of things, good and bad, towards, uh, towards Jacob. But he's not willing to cross the line of actually doing something to Jacob. And it's because of God's divine intervention. God shows up and he protects Jacob. Jacob, who was always able to protect himself, is now being protected by God. There are times in lives in our lives when God supernaturally intercedes and he protects his people. He protects us from circumstances. He protects us even from violence. Sometimes we see it. You know. Sometimes we know exactly how God has saved us and rescued us and protected us. And other times we're sort of oblivious to it. God may use dreams. He may use circumstances. He may use any means that he wants to thwart the plans of our enemies, those that would come against us and guard us from harm that would come to us in this world. He protects us, and he does it through direct, divine Intervention. That's one way that he does it. Before we move on, that's the first way, but before we move on, I I think it would be good to note that part of the reason there's so much strife between these guys is because they've created this track record of deception throughout their lives. Um, Why don't they trust each other? Because all they've done is trick each other. That's all they've done for their whole lives. So Laban says, why did you leave? And Jacob says, because I thought you were going to take your daughters from me by force. Now, is that beyond the realm of possibility? Certainly not. I mean, Laban is the guy who told Jacob, work for seven years and I'll give you my daughter, and then on the wedding night switches and gives him gives him Leah instead of Rachel. I mean, this is not beyond the realm of possibility that Laban's just going to say, no, this is all mine and you can't leave. I think there's a lesson here that's sort of a maybe a sub-point, but it's, it's just this idea that we shouldn't be, surprised if people expect us to act the way that we have always acted it's laban feels like he's wrong but laban had been a deceiver up to this point why would jacob not think that he's going to get deceived by laban and so too for us if if, if our lives are marked by lying and deception why should we be surprised if people don't trust us um, if we're lazy if we're sloppy in our work, if we're unteachable, if we're prideful uh, towards authority, if we're unreliable, if we don't take anything serious, if we're untrustworthy, then why should we be surprised if people think that we're going to continue to act in that exact same way? We shouldn't be surprised, though often we are. I heard an interview on NPR with uh, Merle Haggard, who recently died. Merle Haggard was a guy, a legend in a genre of country music called outlaw country, (laughs) And he wrote songs about criminal activity and jumping trains and spending time in jail. And he wrote those songs from personal experience early on in his life. Um, But after being in and out of jail for a long period of time, he landed in a cell that was on death row. He himself wasn't on death row, but he was with people who were. And it woke him up. And he had created this track record that communicated he was untrustworthy and he was lazy and he just wanted to take advantage of people. And he realized in that moment that no one was ever going to trust him. And he began in prison to start creating a track record of trustworthiness and hard work. And before long, he was let out um, and obviously did pretty well for himself in his life. And it's interesting to think that you know Jacob has been far from perfect. But in his early days, his early days are marked by some pretty nasty things that he did to people. But as we look at his time with Laban, it seems that there's a growing that He's not perfect. No, he never is, really. But he's certainly creating a better he's been He's been tricked more than he has tricked, I would say. He's been taken advantage of by Laban more than he has taken advantage of Laban. And in all of that, actually, I think we see the second way that God protects us. So he protects us by divine intervention, but he also protects us through the integrity of our lives. God protects us through the integrity of our own lives. God uses our own integrity to protect us. So Laban is angry with Jacob for leaving without saying goodbye. But he's also angry about what? My, his missing gods, he says. Why did you take my household gods? Why did you steal my gods? We're going to come back to that whole thing in a minute and what Rachel does and, and how that all fits in. But notice here how confident Jacob is. I mean, Jacob is, is so confident. Laban accuses him of stealing these gods, and he knows he didn't do it. And he knows that Laban has nothing on him. Which makes him make this bold claim and he says, whoever has them, Laban, you can, you can kill them. It's a kind of a foolish vow because he doesn't really know what's going on here. But it, you can just sort of see that it's coming from this heart that says he's totally innocent. And Laban takes Jacob up on his offer because he doesn't trust Jacob. And he searches everything that belongs to him. Um, and Jacob submits himself to sort of this public search of everything that he has. Maybe you've experienced that. I think Trevor experienced that this week with the airport, right? You get pulled over by TSA. And, and as much as that's necessary for protection, we know why we push against it. Because we say, I'm innocent. And i got to have someone rooting through my underwear and, and scanning me down and patting me down. It's like, I haven't done anything wrong. And it's almost, that's sort of what Jacob is, is saying. He's saying, I've done nothing wrong. But then he opens up his life and he says, just search me. Search everything that I have. That's fine. i got nothing to hide. And Laban finds nothing. And then Jacob lets fly this speech that has been going for years in his mind. You know, he's got it down. It's the same speech he gave to Rachel and to Leah in the field, but this is a little bit more impassioned. He begins, he just says, what is my sin? What have have I done? What's my offense? And then he goes through a checklist. Number one, you rummage through everything that I own and you found nothing to accuse me of. Okay, so let's check that off, Laban. Number two, for 20 years I have sacrificially served you. He talks about how Laban's flocks were, were blessed. He talks about how he never um, he never took from the rams to eat. And when a ram was lost, he never went to Laban and complained about it. he, he just bored himself and he faced the heat of the day and, and the cold of the night and he pulled all nighters when it was necessary. He says I've served you for twenty years. And then he says, I've earned everything that you just rummaged through. Jacob ticks off numbers. It's it's interesting to see all the numbers. He says, For fourteen years I served you, for your two daughters, and for six years I have served you for this countless flock, despite you changing my wages ten times. Uh, now whether Laban agrees or not, which he doesn't, he still seems to think that all of this is his, Jacob makes it clear, the the case clear that he, that he's he's worked hard and he's put in the time and energy. But at the same time, this is the new Jacob. So you have in 36 through, um, through 41, he's just ticking all these things off. Here's what I've done. I've done all this. I've done all this. And then in verse 42, he says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So he talks about all the work that he has done. And then he says, and God honored that. And if God had not been with me, you would have sent me away empty-handed. It's as if Jacob is saying, I worked really hard, but God blessed me. It's, it's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13. He says, I labored harder than everyone else, but not me. It was the grace of God that was with me. Jacob knows his faults, but he also knows I've been faithful, and God has been faithful to me. This is how God works, isn't it? This is how God works in our lives, that we are called to do what God has called us to do. But in what God calls us to do, he also equips us to do it. We are to strive for holiness in our lives, and God works holiness in our lives. We want to live lives that are filled with integrity, and God is the one that makes that possible. And as we'll see, he does that so that he gets the glory. It's just—it's all the glory goes to him as this work of integrity and holiness that's going on in our lives though, it forms this wall of protection for us. When we live lives that are above reproach, then we can invite anyone into our lives and we say, Search me. Look at my life. Wherever you want. Look look in any one of my tents, you know. Look at the way I treat my spouse and my children. You can look at my work ethic. You can look at my finances and the way that I spend my money. You can open up my internet history and my emails and all my Facebook messages. You can look at, at the way I do my schoolwork. You can come ride in my car in traffic and notice how I interact with people. You know? We open up our lives to people and, and, and we say sort of, search me. Can we say that to our enemies? Can we say, search me? Can we say, I'm above reproach? Not perfect, but a track record of consistent holiness in our lives. Are we like Jacob? We're like Daniel. Remember Daniel? They want to accuse Daniel of something, and what do they have to do? Invent a law against praying to God. <laughs> Is that what our lives look like? That, that if someone wanted to find a, a reason to, to accuse us of something, that they would have to invent a law that says you're not allowed to pray to God to find something to accuse us of? I think maybe we would ask, you know, what's the tent that we want to keep our enemies out of? What's the tent we don't want them to search God, through His Word and through His Holy Spirit, might just sort of be saying to each of us, this is the tent that that you need to clean out. And it starts with confession. It starts with confession to God. It starts with confession to others. And then He says that when you clean that out, I'll fill it with holiness and with integrity in your lives. And that integrity then protects us. This is Proverbs 10.9. Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Having said all that, just remember again that it's God who works holiness and righteousness in us. He is the one who's going to make us above reproach. And and while we may be able to stand in some measure of holiness before others, some measure of above reproachness before others, this is the reality. None of us can stand before God rooted in our own righteousness. Our hope before God is not our holiness, it's not our righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ. Our hope of protection is divine intervention. We need the intervention and the intercession of Jesus. So Jesus lives a life of perfect obedience, doesn't he? He stands before the council and they want to condemn him to death, remember? And they're looking for anything. They're searching all of his tents. They're opening all of his files and they're trying to find a way to accuse Jesus, and they did. They, they dug through everything, and they found nothing. And yet He's killed. He pays the penalty for all of our unrighteousness, for everything that's in our tents, right? So that when we stand before Him, when we stand before God, we can say, "God, You can search all of my tents, and You will find plenty of things to condemn me for. But I'm not trusting in in the integrity of my own tent. <laughs> I'd rather have. Why don't you search the tents of Christ?" That this is where my hope is. He died to forgive my sins. He rose again for us. I'm trusting the merits of Jesus. I'm trusting in his righteousness. This is our hope. So our integrity in this life can protect us from accusations of others. But it's the holiness, it's the righteousness, it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus that saves us. Not our own integrity. So how are we protected? We're protected by divine intervention. We're protected in some measure by the integrity of our own lives. But what do you do with Rachel here, right? <laughs> so Rachel's the one that did steal the gods. Um, here's the thought I think we can. Let's let's take this from Rachel, because I'm. To be honest, I'm not totally sure what to do with Rachel, but here's my best stab at it. God protects us in ways we would never expect. <laughs> God protects us in ways we would never expect. God. Uh, Rachel stole. And maybe she didn't lie, but she certainly was trying to cover something. She was deceptive in some measure. We don't know why. We see her take the, you know, it's mentioned earlier in the narrative that she's the one that took them, and we don't really know why. You might think it's retaliation, actually, against her, her father. When she lies, she says, she says that the way or the custom of women is upon her. That's a, a reference to the fact that she was menstruating. But it's ironic that she fools Laban with a, a custom is the word that she used. And it's the same word that, that, that Laban uses when he says that's not the custom in our land. Remember when, when he says that no, we have to give the firstborn first. And that's how Rachel ends up not marrying Jacob when she wanted to. And, and this whole two wives and then four wives and all the mess of that. So isn't that interesting that maybe she's sort of getting a little jab in at her father. Now, right or wrong, that might be what's happening. I'm not totally sure. But it certainly is wrong what she's doing and what she has done. And I think that there's, there's grace shown here. Isn't there? There's just so much grace shown to Rachel and to Jacob's entire family. Undeserved, unmerited kindness that is given to them. It reminds us that everything that we have is grace. All the protection that we have from God is just... Why? Because he loves us. Because he's kind to us. In the midst of all of our foolish and stupid and rebellious and selfish actions, somehow, some way. For some reason, God protects us. I mean, this isn't the only place in the Bible that God uses deception to protect his people, right? We could could give a, a list. That's not an excuse to sin, okay? But it's evidence that God's protection and God's kindness towards us is never contingent upon our actions. It's not contingent on us deserving it. We don't deserve his protection, no. And God may protect us in ways that we would never expect. So... God protects us through divine intervention, through the integrity of our own lives in ways we would never expect. I, I want to share a story that I think sort of brings these things together. It's from the book God's Smuggler by Brother Andrew. Um, if you've ever read that, I've listened to it. It's a great book. But it tells the story. He was a, um, a missionary, and it, tells the, it kind of encapsulates, encapsulates these things. So during the height of the Cold War, um, communist countries were keeping a tight control on their, on their borders But God had sort of called, he had called Brother Andrew to help Christians that were beyond the Iron Curtain. So he tells this experience of driving a car full of illegal Bibles through a checkpoint, a point in in Romania. That's a little long, but it's a great story. So he says, when I pulled up to the checkpoint on the other side of the Danube, I said to myself, well, I'm in luck. Only half a dozen cars. The Romanian border crossing should go swiftly. But when it took 40 minutes to inspect the first car, I began to worry. Literally everything that that family was carrying had had to be taken out and spread on the ground. Every car in line was put through the same routine. The fourth inspection lasted well over an hour. The guards took the driver inside and kept him there while they removed hubcaps, took his engine apart, removed seats. Dear Lord, I said, as at last there was just one car ahead of me, what am I going to do? Any serious inspection will show up these Romanian Bibles right away. Lord, I went on, I know that no amount of cleverness on my part can get me through this border search. Dare I ask for a miracle? Let me take some of the Bibles out and leave them in the open where they will be seen. Then, Lord, I cannot possibly be depending upon my own stratagems, can I? I will be depending utterly upon you. While the last car was going through its chilling inspection, I managed to take several Bibles from their hiding places and pile them on the seat beside me. I love that. It was my turn. I put the little VW in low gear, inched up to the officer standing at the left side of the road, handed him my papers, and started to get out. But his knee was against the door, holding it closed. He looked at my photograph in the passport, scribbled something down, shoved the papers back under my nose, and abruptly waved me on. Surely 30 seconds had not passed. I started the engine and inched forward. Was I supposed to pull over, out of the way, where the car could be taken apart? Was I? Surely I wasn't. I, I coasted forward, my foot poised above the brake. Nothing happened. I looked out the rear mirror. The guard was waving the next car to stop, indicating to the driver that he had to get out. On I drove a few more yards. The guard was having the driver behind me open the hood of his car. And then I was too far away to doubt that indeed I had made it through that incredible checkpoint in the space of 30 seconds. My heart was racing, not with the excitement of the crossing, but with the excitement of having caught such a spectacular glimpse of God at work. Isn't that awesome? And that's what God does. He protects us through divine intervention. This, the, Brother Andrew was a man of integrity. And he was, you see that as he sets these books on the, on the seat beside him. I'll be a man of integrity. And in what an unexpected way uh, that God protects him. And this is how God works for us. And we even in that story, you see why. Let me give you two reasons I think that we can draw from this for why God protects us. Number one, God protects us for his own glory. God protects us for his own glory. I think the episodes with these gods serves an even greater purpose than to just say he does it in unexpected ways. It adds a voice not simply to speak about how God protects us, but why. So Laban is an enemy of the covenant. Um, He's an enemy of God's blessing. He reminds us that sin and Satan and the enemies of this world want to enslave us. And we should not be surprised that when we find freedom from the things that have held us captive for years, that soon they're going to chase us back down. But God thwarts all their plans, and he sends them away to show that he's in control. Remember the parallels between this and the Exodus? So if Laban is Pharaoh who's chasing them down, then this moment here is the Red Sea, where he's just washed over and can do nothing. It's when God thwarts all of Laban's plans and preserves his covenant people for his glory. So whatever Rachel did wrong, Think about this picture. Where are Laban's puny gods? Rachel is sitting on them, presumably while she is menstruating. Now, I'm not trying to be graphic, but think about what that means for the children of Israel who had all these laws about cleanliness and how blood made things unclean. And the whole thing says in a very graphic way that any person or any god that tries to stand against the true God will be totally and utterly humiliated. I think that's what we're supposed to draw from this in many ways. This is our God. And that's the gods of the world. So I think we should feel some of that, you know. Our God is exalted above every other God. The gods of this world, where do they fit? They fit in some saddlebag. Where does our God fit? The heavens and the highest heavens cannot even contain him. The gods of this world can be sat upon. What does God do with his enemies? He makes them all his footstool. The gods of this world are silent. If they were real gods, couldn't they just say, We're under here, Laban? But they can't even speak. And yet God speaks through his word, he speaks through the blood of his son, and he shuts the mouth of everyone else. The gods of this world they fade and they falter, but our God is from everlasting to everlasting. I think we just take this picture and when we feel defeated by sin, when we feel like Satan is crouching at our door, when we feel pushed to despair, when we're tempted to worship all the gods and the idols in our lives, we remember, listen, there's only one God in this world that deserves to be bowed down to and worshipped. And every other God in this world, they deserve one thing. (laughs) They deserve to be sat upon, right? Our God alone deserves worship. Everyone else deserves to be sat on. And Jacob knows this. And so when Laban tries to save face and he makes this covenant, as it were, Jacob just sort of goes along with it. Laban wants the rocks that they set up to be some sort of witness, this promise that they're going to you know, to protect from each other and to protect Jacob from mistreating um, Laban's daughters, which is so strange considering how much Laban mistreated his own daughters. Um, and Jacob asserts in this moment, he asserts his belief in the one true and living God. So Laban and his kinsmen, how many stones did they set up? A multitude of stones for all their different gods. And what does Jacob set up? One stone. He says, I only need one God. I don't need all your other gods. I, my God will protect me. Jacob doesn't need an altar. He knows that his God is, he calls him the fear of Isaac. He's the God who haunts the dreams of his enemies, isn't he? He's the God who Jacob himself fears, but he's also the God in, that instills fear in all of his enemies. This is the God who sees Jacob and protects him and blesses the labor of his hands. So Jacob honors and he glorifies God in this entire episode. He recognizes that everything that he has is a blessing that he's experienced from God. And God alone is going to protect him. And just a reminder, God alone is to be lifted up in our lives. God alone is the one that deserves honor and worship. He's protected us and he will continue to do so. So he does it for his own glory. And the second and the final thing we'll say, God protects us so that we will trust him more. We could say more. Let's say we will trust him alone. God protects us so that we will trust him alone. So you see that happen with Jacob. Jacob defends himself, but he acknowledges that God is the one on his side. Jacob makes this covenant and he recognizes that God alone is going to protect him. And so they ate bread there, and they made this covenant, and Laban returns home. I think this is very simple. I think that God is just opening Jacob's eyes on this whole journey throughout this whole time to to the ways that he has continually protected him. Jacob's faith and his trust in God are increasing. He's headed in the right direction, we said last week. And and as he heads in the right direction, his faith and his trust in God grow. He begins to lean away from his own scheming, which is what he's lived his whole life doing, and now he's trusting more fully in God. I think that happens for us. As we walk through life, and we're protected in these amazing ways, we recognize that that God is the one who is doing it, and we're filled with peace. We're filled with trust in Him. We learn to lean on God, not to trust our own schemes and our own plans. I, I love how they... They eat a meal, right? It says there in verse 54, And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country, which often happened when a covenant was made, that there was bread that was eaten. How kind of God that this morning we tell, celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so, like Jacob and Laban, we're sort of eating this meal to remind ourselves of a covenant. But it's a covenant that Christ has made in His blood. The Lord's table reminds us that apart from the body and the blood of Jesus, we have no hope of salvation. We have no protection. We have no protection from Satan. We have no protection from the wrath of God against our sin. We have no protection from the future judgment that is to come. But through faith in Christ, through faith in what he has done in his broken body and his shed blood, we are forgiven. We are made right before the Father. We are protected from ourselves. We're protected from our own sin. And we're protected from the wrath of God against that sin. Jesus has paid the price. His body was broken. His blood was shed. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. And His blood brings the forgiveness of our sins. That's what we want to remember this morning. I I think as we think about how God protects us so that we will trust him alone, that each time we take this meal, it's a reminder of what he has done for us. And it encourages us to let us keep trusting in the Lord. Let's keep remembering that this is where our hope is. Our hope is not in who we are or what we can do. Our hope is in the fact that God has divinely intervened in our lives. Our hope is not in our own integrity, but it's in the righteousness of Christ. And he has done it in such an amazing way, a way we would have never expected. He has done it through the death of his own son and through the resurrection life that he brings.